Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. My name's Robert, I'm one of the pastors here, there are three of us, and it's just again, it's just a great privilege to serve here in the ministry, and if you're visiting, we are actually making our way through a series in the book of Acts, and it's called The History of the Early Church, and it's kind of like a mini-series in a series, and we're looking at the, the Jerusalem Council, or the, the conference, or the summit at Jerusalem. And today's message, or today's topic is, faith in Jesus leads to unity. Faith in Jesus leads to unity. And I'm going to start reading in Acts chapter 15. And we're going to try and make our way through verse 12 to 21. Someone just laugh. Is, it, is that a lot of verses? Well, let's go. Verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, and I'm reading from the ESV. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Thus says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Last week, we saw Peter step up to the podium, speaking up at his session, if you like, at this important conference, which convened to answer the the, the serious question, are we saved by being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses? That is the issue that was being dealt with at this conference. Are we saved by being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses? Absolutely not, says Peter. We are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. 
we, that is both Jews and Gentiles, are saved in similar fashion. Verse 11 says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Furthermore, why would we, that is the Jews, require it of them, that is the Gentiles? That is that they would keep the law of Moses and be circumcised. And expect them to do something that we don't even do. That is keep the law. We Jews don't keep the law. Peter says. And if those who were listening were honest, they would admit it. Do you remember in the Gospels, the Lord Jesus spoke to the scribes and the Pharisees, those who laid heavy burdens on the people that Jesus said they themselves were not carrying. And they were insisting that individuals keep the Sabbath. And Jesus said, you hypocrites. You're you're forcing others to keep a Sabbath, to keep a law that you yourselves don't keep. Because if your donkey drops off into the gully, don't you go and dig them out and pick them out and drag them out? Like jump in your four by four and pull them out? Yes, you do. And they never responded because they knew that that's what they did. Yet they were forcing others to keep laws that they themselves were not keeping. I don't know if you heard the story about an Italian trucker, an Italian long-distance lorry driver. It was his common practice to visit brothels, to visit professional escorts and, and prostitutes. And a friend recommended to him this particular brothel. But it was close to the driver's home, and he was a bit... He was a bit concerned, he was a bit wary, but because it came with such a high endorsement, he chose to take the risk. And not being able to resist, he sought out a particular prostitute who had a glowing reputation, highly endorsed, the finest in her trade. And whilst waiting in his room, his excitement An elated expectation was quickly quenched when the woman who entered the room was his wife. And it was said that he could hardly be restrained, check it, and would have done great bodily harm to her. And here's the punchline. So angry was he at her lack of faithfulness. What hypocrisy. So Peter says, what is this? Are we going to require something from the Gentiles that we honestly don't expect from ourselves? He says, remember what happened to Cornelius a few years ago. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know, verse 7, you know. Verse 10, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? We spoke about that last week. By placing a a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. 
Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9, right? For by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace. Now that's what we looked at last week. Verse 12 says, And all the assembly fell silent. Silence is sometimes a loud admission of guilt. Now remember, this is the Jerusalem summit, the Jerusalem council or conference. Now we will hear the second session speaker or the session second session speakers. I got confused there because I just saw Michael and Dawn walk in. Welcome back, guys. What so now we're going to hear the second session speakers step up to the pulpit or step up to the podium. And notice the reversed order. Not Paul and Barnabas as it has been in the last two chapters, but Barnabas and Paul. And this is probably because Barnabas was more well known to the Jerusalem church and would be more welcomed. So Barnabas was probably the main speaker. And it says they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now we won't spend time looking in detail at what Barnabas and Paul said at this point. Because we just spent the last few weeks covering that, right? So in summary, their mission started in Cyprus where Barnabas actually came from. And they met and preached to Sergius Paulus, who was the Roman proconsul. And they met, remember, Elymas the magician, who tried to hinder the work, which resulted in him being struck with blindness. Elymas could see naturally, but ended up being blind. Sergius Paulus was blind spiritually and ended up being able to see. From Cyprus, they sailed to Pamphylia, which is where, remember, John Mark abandoned the work. He abandoned them. But well, we're going to see more of John Mark next week. And it says, and, and then they, that is Paul and Barnabas, they traveled to Pisidian Antioch, and Paul preaches in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and it says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. But then the Jews incited a riot and had Paul and Barnabas expelled. So they come to Iconium. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They preached effectively in the synagogue. Again, many believed, both of Jew and Greek. Some Jews opposed them. But God performed through them many signs and wonders. Then they fled upon the threat of being stoned. Then they come to Lycaonia, Lystra, and Derbe. Again, they keep preaching. They see a man lame from birth, healed. And the people begin to honor Paul and Barnabas as gods, remember? And Paul and Barnabas refuse to be worshipped and point the people to the real and the living God. Don't worship us. And the crowd is then swayed strangely, by the Jews who then end up stoning 
Paul and leaving him for dead. And the Lord miraculously raises up Paul and again many disciples are made. And then after finishing in Derbe they begin to make their way back home to the church in Antioch via the way they came revisiting and reinvigorating, encouraging the churches. And so verse 12 says, as Paul and Barnabas, as Barnabas and Paul began to relate the great things that God has done, they listened, verse 12, to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Barnabas and Paul then sit down in order to make way for our third and final speaker, Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, and check it, in the same way that Peter began his talk earlier, and he says, brothers, listen to me. Now this is James, also known as James the Just, because of his reputation for godly righteousness. Also known as James, the Lord's brother, or James, the brother of Jesus. Or the half-brother of Jesus, right? This is James who wrote the epistle or the letter that comes just after Hebrews. Which is commonly referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. In which he talks about wisdom, right? In chapter 1. And he says, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, he says, Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. And we see this wisdom displayed as James now takes the podium to speak up or to sum up, as some translations actually say. So Acts 15, verse 13, James says, brothers, listen to me. And he goes back to the first speech given by Peter, who's also known as Simeon, which is actually his Jewish name, which probably was diplomacy on James's part because... Right here in Jerusalem, particularly where the Judaizers were. He says, listen to me. Verse 14, Simeon has related in his first session at this conference how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. We saw that back in verse 7. And James reiterates the fact that God now recognizes saved Gentiles. In the same way that he recognized saved Jews as his people. Verse 15. And with this, James says, the words of the prophets agree. And James quotes the prophet Amos in chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. And he says, just as it is written there, verse 16. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Notice that this is God speaking in this prophecy. I will return. I will rebuild. I will rebuild and I will restore. And why is God going to do these things? Verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. See that? And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known 
from of old. Here in this prophecy we see two things. First of all, everyone present would have agreed that the Lord Jesus Christ was the new king that came from the same line, the same line as David. Therefore, the broken down tent or house of David was now being rebuilt. It was being restored as it were. And King David's dynasty was now fulfilled in King Jesus's dynasty. You know that Christ is not Jesus's second name, right? It's a title, just like, who's the, who's the new prime minister? Nick, Nick Clegg is not the prime minister. Who's David Cameron, right? Well, I suppose he is and he isn't, right? David Cameron. Now, David Cameron is the, is the prime minister. His name is, isn't prime minister. It's a title, just like Pharaoh is a title, just like Herod was a title. Christ is not Jesus' surname, it's his title. And it's the same, it's the equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. And, it, and both of those words mean the same thing, which is the anointed one. The anointed one. And at a coronation of a king in the Old Testament, in the same way we would see like the queen or the king crowned, what they did in Israel with their kings was they anointed them with oil. Do you remember when Samuel went to get David and he took the oil and he anointed him as king? That's what they did at the coronation. So anointing or anointed one makes reference to the king, the ruler. So Messiah or Christ is a direct reference to Old Testament kingship. And as king, Jesus, he has to have a kingdom. What is a king without a kingdom? Yet his kingdom was now to be spiritual and not material. You remember Jesus saying in John chapter 18, verse 36, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate was like, so you are a king then? Yeah, I am. And you remember he nailed above his head when they crucified him, Jesus, king of the Jews. Jesus was the king who had now fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies prophecies with reference to David's line of kings and he was now obviously the ultimate king so that's the first thing the old testament makes reference to Jesus as the king over David's kingdom ultimately making him the king over God's kingdom and the question we then have to ask is is this restored kingdom only for Jewish subjects no verse 17 clarifies now the second point It will be restored that or so that or with the intention that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And just in case we're confused as to who the remnant of mankind is, the prophet includes crystal clear clarification and all the Gentiles, all the non-Jews. So first of all, Jesus is the king of the restored kingdom and secondly this kingdom will include gentile subjects that's the main point of the prophecy and it's 
It's a clear-cut, categorical prophecy. See, the inclusion of the Gentiles was not an afterthought, but a legitimate prediction foretold by the prophets in divine scripture. Now you can imagine as these Jews are listening, even though they had a perspective, their perspective was being bludgeoned by the truth of the word of God. That's why they sit there silent. Now, James refers to his response as his judgment. See it in verse 19. And it may seem like just another observer expressing his opinion. But just like the other witnesses, his judgment is actually God's judgment. His decision is God's decision. His verdict is God's verdict. John Stott says, Scripture itself confirmed the facts of the missionary's experience. And we must always be, sh- be careful to keep it that way around. We don't determine what the Bible teaches on the basis of our experience. We look at our experience in the light of what the Bible teaches. That way we won't end up getting into trouble. Scripture itself confirmed the facts of the missionary's experience. There was, an argue, there, was an, there was an agreement between what God had done through his apostles, right, their experiences, and what he had said through his prophets. This correspondence between scripture and experience, between the witness of the prophets and the apostles for James, was conclusive. And this was now to be the unanimous decision and conclusion of the matter. That what? That we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Let's not trouble them, it says in verse 19, like the troublemakers did back in verse 1, remember? But we should write to them. Although we will not give them any laws to keep, we do have instructions for them. And it's to abstain, verse 20, from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, although they determine not to give any laws, verse 20 seems like they end up giving them laws. Now, what is this? What, maybe the Gentiles can't handle ten commandments, so let's just give them a cut-down version. Let's give them four. Four commandments instead of ten, is that what's going on? Well, no. If you look carefully, these are all negative things to abstain from. Idolatry, sexual immorality, blood-filled, undrained meat, and blood. The clue is found in verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. See, the Jewish religion was very, very popular. And practicing Jews were to be found everywhere. In virtually every city. And these Jews, Christians or unconverted would be very sensitive to Jewish culture and ceremony. So in order not to offend their sensitive, 
consciences unnecessarily, the converted Gentiles ought not to use their liberty in an inconsiderate way. All right, we've determined now the council is basically coming to a close and this is the decision. The Gentiles who are getting saved now do not have to, one, be circumcised and two, they don't have to keep the law of Moses. And they're like, you consider the Gentiles who possibly were there were jubilant and the Judaizers were screwing but they couldn't say anything because if they did, they would have been found to be fighting against God. See, and there's an issue there's potentially disunity on the horizon. Can you see that? They're all supposed to be one in Christ, but you've got one contingent and another. Some are jumping up and down all excited because they're free and they've got liberty. And the other ones are standing there looking at them very unhappily. Like, if I could rugby tackle you, if I could like American football, like hit you, clean out the game, I would do so. But I can't. But that's how I feel. Can you see that there, there's potential for division? See, and this is what we're talking about. We're talking about faith in Jesus bringing about unity. Thank God for the scriptures because it's in them we find the mechanisms to handle issues. And difficult ones at that, particularly relational ones. Bible's heavy. And so the converted Gentiles, even though they're free now and they're at liberty, careful now, easy, because you could be found guilty of using your liberty now in a very inconsiderate way. It's not about laws. It's not about, well, you're not saved or you're putting your salvation at risk because you act like this. No. But you know what? If you are saved... Surely you ought to consider your brother or your sister. It's like someone wins the lottery. Not that I'm encouraging anyone to play the lottery. I suspect most of you don't. But if somebody did, how, you, how are they going to contain their excitement? And they come in on Sunday morning knowing that they've got this, the, the Super Bowl or the Wonder Ball or whatever it's called. And the rollover and tutus, 50 million pounds. And it is, it, it's them. It's not you or me. It's them. And they walk into church and they can't control it, they can't contain themselves. How, how, how does that leave you and me feeling if they can't even sit down in the service? Say, are running up and down and want to go tell everybody in children's ministry, run out the street, go knock on all the doors and, and run, come back in it. I mean, now you can understand why they're excited. That's not a good example, is it, winning the lottery? But you get my point, right? They can't contain their excitement. But is that being considerate to you and me who have to go to work tomorrow morning? It's not very considerate, is it? In the same way that you and me shouldn't be sitting down there looking at them thinking, yeah, hmm, all right, so what? All right, so what? You, you, you won the, the lottery. And this is after nicing them up first. You know you nice them up first. Because you know if they won 50 million, you might get a cut, right? But now that they're not trying to let off any of the dough, you're like, how do you feel? Or what is the temptation and the tendency now of, of, your, of, of, of your and my wicked heart? 
Sometimes you, when somebody gets blessed, you, you notice sometimes something rises up in you. A disgust rises, a hatred, right, right, that's, how, that's, the, that's Jeremiah right there. The wickedness of man's heart. Scripture says, the heart of man is desperately evil. Above all things. Oh my gosh. Who can know it? The prophet says. And it's true. Even as believers, right? If we're honest. There's that. And so you see, on both sides, there's a need for charity. There's a need for consideration. See, and this list of four things could potentially be very offensive. That is to the Jews. Now, there are at least three ways to look at this. I'm just going to pick two. First of all, the list comprises everything that would be common to heathen temple worship. I remember looking at this verse for years as a Christian, thinking, Lord, I really don't know what this means in Acts 15. What is this list about? Well, the first thing I would suggest is that the list comprises everything that would be common to heathen temple worship. Now, you have to put yourself in the place of a Jew now, which would cause you, a Jew, to heave. I mean, you'd reach. This would be so offensive to you. Heathen temple worship. So the first thing, things polluted by idols. That is, if you like, sacrifices to foreign deities. I mean, you know that sometimes the, the heathens, not only did they have animal sacrifices, but sometimes they even had human sacrifices. I mean, that would make you and me feel sick, let alone a Jew. Human sacrifice. Sacrificing babies to some, to Molech, some heathen deity. It's disgusting. Secondly, sexual immorality. You know, in these temples where they used to offer up these sacrifices to, sacrifices to these deities, temple prostitution was the order of the day. A part of your worship would be to have sexual relations with a prostitute. Now, now, how popular do you think this would be? I mean, it's part of your worship. Oh, I've got to get up and go to worship at the temple today. <laughs> I'm really not feeling like it. I don't think they used to feel like that. At, at, well, at least the men, that is. You know what I'm saying? And it was ritualistic sex trying to encourage the gods to bring about fertility. The third one, strangled animals. Again, possibly a picture of an animal being sacrificed again to these foreign gods. But rather than killing it and shedding the blood, they just wring its neck and just chuck it up onto the, I don't know, the fiery object that would burn it and consume it. What do you call that thing? Altar, on the altar. Thank you. You know, it was, the, it was that second sexual immorality one that's thrown me. Um, the fourth one, blood. The heathen worshippers, check it, would sometimes drink mixed wine and blood. 
as, as a beverage, as a part of their temple worship. And a lot of it is, well, let me not even say that. And all of this would contribute to heathen temple worship. Now, that's one explanation. Another one would be, and I probably agree with this one particularly, is that this list of four things are ceremonial matters in another sense. Number one would not be idolatry like worship in the strict sense, not the bowing down to an idol, but it's actually the meat that's offered to an idol. It was meat now that was polluted by, the, by virtue of being offered up now. It was different before you offered it up. It was just meat. It was just lamb. But now that you've taken that lamb and you've offered it up to this idol, it's cont- I don't, I don't want to touch that. I don't want to smell it. Far from wanting to eat it. Keep it away from me. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 I suspect sheds quite a a, a lot of light on this. Verse 4 says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. It doesn't. It's made of wood or it's made of stone or it's made of metal. Like my brother said a couple weeks ago, it can't see, it can't hear, and it can't speak. It's nothing. So... Offering up meat to that thing, as far as I'm concerned, is nothing. Okay, you offered it up. I will still cook it and eat it the same way. I don't business. It's just meat to me. Now, that's how some would have felt, but then there are others that would, their conscience would be terribly affected and they wouldn't be able to eat it. But he says, Paul says, as far as we're concerned, you know what? There's only one God. Verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. Not all are mature in that sense. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Verse 9. But take care. Take care that this right of yours, if you're called to just cook it and yam it, if this right. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, you don't business, it's nothing to you. (laughs) Will he not be encouraged? That is the onlooker. Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So he'll see you doing it and he'll think, man... In my heart, I feel like I I don't want to do that, but he's doing it, so I would do it. And when I do it now, it's not like when he does it, because when he does it, his conscience is clear, but when I do it, I'm thinking, I shouldn't be doing this. And so, verse 11, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers, and check it, sinning against your brothers, 
and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, says Paul, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I'm free to eat it. But, whoa, if my eating is going to cause you to stumble, you know what? I can live without it. It's nothing. See, and this works both ways. A Jewish brother could be offended clearly. But also a Gentile brother could be offended because before he got saved, he used to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But now that he's a Christian, he's like, hmm, I don't think I can go back to that anymore. You might, as a Christian, remember that there were things that you used to do before you got saved that are not sin. And there are other believers that can do that. But you yourself, you can't do it. Now, I'm not going to get specific because I'm going to try and talk about that in a minute. The second thing, abstaining from sexual immorality. Now, this is the difficult one because this seems like a moral law. This seems like this could easily fall into the seventh commandment. But the word is porneo in Greek, and it doesn't necessarily just mean full-blown sex. Right? I don't, know if, I don't know how many of you were here when we done our singles conference. But there are, there are issues between a man and a woman who are not married that are not necessarily full-blown sex, but fall into maybe the category of foreplay. And it's like, who was the president? Was it Clinton? He said, he said nothing ever happened between us. What do you mean, Mr. Clinton? Be more specific. And when he was specific, he said there was no full-blown intercourse. You know what I'm saying? But. And you see, that, that other area where it's like, well, it's all good. You know, we're not really having sex. We're not married, and we're not supposed to relate to one another sexually. But hey... Surely there's other areas that we can dabble in. Well, we would determine no, no, there ain't. Because for play, by definition, is the stuff you do before you play. It leads somewhere. It has a purpose. Porneo. It's not just sexual immorality in the strict sense. And... That's not even my point. I mention that because this is another shade to it with regard to incestuous marriages. See, under the old covenant, you couldn't get into a relationship. Now, this is complicated because at the beginning, I say the old covenant. Before Moses, we know that there were patriarchs who had multiple wives. Even Abraham had a wife who was his half-sister. Well, after a process of time, that become just completely like outlawed. And by the time we get to Moses and post the commandments and obviously the, the ceremonial law, this is something that is really frowned upon now. That is these inter kind of, um, these incestuous type of marriages, marrying a close blood relative. 
See, this contravened the ceremonial law in Leviticus. So it's possible that this is what is actually being referred to as the second point with regard to sexual immorality. And the apostles were saying, Gentiles, we know that you possibly will live like this. You possibly will be having these really close incestuous relationships. We're saying, look, please don't do it. Please don't do it. There's not a strict law against it, but because of the conscience of your Jewish brothers who will see you with someone that they know is your close relative and you're getting married to this. Again, this makes them, this makes them heave. The third thing, abstaining from what has been strangled. This relates to animals strangled, as I said before, and not having the blood drained out of them whose flesh the Jews were forbidden to eat under the Levitical law. See, it wasn't kosher, which is food prepared according to Jewish dietary rules. Leviticus 17, and it's a little bit like halal meat. It's meat. They, they were accustomed to only eating meat that was prepared a certain way. So they're saying, please, we know that you do this. It's your culture. But we're saying, relinquish maybe your grasp on your culture for love of your brothers and your sisters. You, you can do that. It's not a sin to do that, but it's a sin if you do it knowing it's going to affect your brothers and your sisters. The fourth one is blood, which refers to, well I should say, it refers not to the shedding of it, but to the eating of it, which again was forbidden in Leviticus at that time. If you had Jewish friends over, please don't serve them a rare T-bone steak swimming in blood. I mean, I see these cooking programs sometimes and invariably, it seems like the best chefs, that's how they drop it. And people who are really cultured, you know what I mean, and know about different types of food, they prefer their, their steak or their, their meat rare. That's not me. You know what I mean? <laughs> You know, like when you go barbecue and people are cooking, I'm like, could I have that one? <laughs> like in five minutes. Just keep turning it. I don't care how dark or black it is. Because I want to make sure the meat is cooked. You feel me? But, um, now the thing is, rare, with blood in it. You might like it like that. And that's all good. That's your preference. But you know what? You may like it like that, and it's not wrong for you to have it like that unless it causes your Jewish brother to stumble. See? So if, check it. If Jewish believers were not to make it hard for the Gentile believers, you must be circumcised, you must keep the law of No, stop that. You're making it hard for them. You don't need to do that. It's grace. It's faith in Christ. That's it. But then on the other hand, Gentile believers were not to make it hard for Jewish believers. They were not to put a stumbling block in the way of a potential believer. James says, 
the Jews must not insist that the Gentiles conform to their cultural patterns. But to the Gentiles, some of the stuff that you lot do, the Jews will never be able to handle it. And it's going to drive a wedge between the two groups. Therefore, both of you, listen, lovingly abstain from culturally offensive practices. Can you see that? Now, do we have any modern day examples of the same? Jacob Prash, who is a brother that I really love dearly, someone who the Lord used particularly to help myself, Pastor Ephraim, Pastor Patrick, 10, 12, maybe 15 years ago, to come out of a movement that was really destroying us. Um, Yaakov Prash is... He's a Messianic Jew. He's a Jew who's actually born again, who's born in New York. He's actually coming here on the 21st of November, so you can put that in your diary. Amazing Bible teacher. He is Jewish, so he speaks Hebrew, reads Hebrew, and it's beautiful. When you hear him pray, you pray sometimes in Hebrew, and he'll read the scriptures, and he'll, he'll, he'll translate them on the fly in Hebrew into English. It's beautiful. You're going to be so blessed when he comes. Trust me. Well, he's Jewish. And as a Christian believer, he chooses not to eat bacon. Not because he doesn't have, not because he, not because he can't. Because he chooses not to. And he observes Shabbat, the Sabbath. Again, not because he has to. But because he chooses to for his Jewish family's sake. Okay, how about, have you heard about an issue, it's pretty long ago, so you probably may not have heard it, with regard to psalms, hymns, choruses, and instrumental accompaniment? Now that I say that, you might think, what on earth? If you think that we are having drama today regarding new musical forms and styles like when I first started rapping in 1993, 94, the church that we were at, there were people that were writing letters to me saying, you're working for the devil. Now, I wasn't out there like Jay-Z telling man to get their bleep, bleep, bleep hands in the air. I wasn't doing that. I was spitting, I was in my songs, there were biblically based, you know what I'm saying, lyrics. Yep. And I tell you, I cried sometimes myself to sleep like, Lord, I can't believe it. I'm actually being accused of fighting against you. What, because I'm using a form that my church particularly frowns upon. And it was drama. And the Lord helped me, helped others, you know what I'm saying, in that contingent just to say, you know what, we're convinced that you can't deny what we're doing from a biblical point of view. That's your preference. Just say you don't like hip-hop. Now, I don't like hip-hop. That is mainstream hip-hop. You know what I mean? But, fam, there ain't nothing wrong with what we're doing. Furthermore, we're actually furthering the, the purpose of the kingdom by using this. Because I don't see you out there chatting to the youths them out on road. I don't see you going into the schools. Furthermore, you can't even connect with them. You can't even speak their language. But now that's, a, that's a conversation for another day. I'm saying, 
This issue with new musical styles ain't a new issue. Check it. My goodness. There was much controversy when pianos were first introduced into the church settings. Why? As they were considered barroom instruments. Now, how deep is that? You know, the Bible says there ain't nothing new under the sun. You, you, how dare you bring such a heathen and ungodly instrument into the church? A piano! Now, how many of you don't know one ain't going to argue about that today? That's long. That argument's long. It's done. Finished. It's, but back then, my goodness. The church was in uproar. As Isaac Watts, who was an 18th, check it, this is how far it goes back, he was an 18th century hymn writer. He quietly pastored Mark Lane Chapel in London. The growing popularity of his hymns was causing a tempest. Hymns. Now, this was back in the day when in church, they would only sing psalms from the scripture. So we'd come in and we're going to sing a song to the Lord 200 years ago. It better be Psalm 34 or Psalm 150 or you. That's how they worshipped, using the psalms. So now when Isaac Watts starts writing hymns, which to us are now like ancient, right? But for them was new, it was like, it's new wave. It'd be like bringing grime into the church. <laughs> what? Christian congregations, check this. Christian converse, congregations, it was said, have shut out divinely inspired psalms, one man complained, and taken in what's his flights of fancy. The issue of singing hymns versus psalms split churches. Individuals said, no, the only thing we ought to sing is scripture, the psalms. God gave us his songbook. We're not singing anything other than that. And others be like, come on now. I mean, Paul says in the, first, in the New Testament, we're supposed to sing unto the Lord psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So why the drama? No. We're not having it. We can't have this new wave, newfangled pianos where we're used to seeing ladies do um, the, the, what's that, that dance they do with their skirts and dancing on the top of the piano. No, 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 mm -mm. Why? Because it offended their conscience. It's, there's nothing in the Bible about it. In the same way that rappers today, and I think there needs to be a distinction, but I said I'm not going to try and talk about that. You know what I mean? Because there's, 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 there's rap and there's Christian rap. You know what I mean? There were believers who saw these invisible women dancing on top of the piano. It offended their conscience. <laughs> and the issue was so serious, it split churches. Even a church, including a church in Bedford, one that was pastored by John Bunyan who wrote the Pilgrim's Progress. His church got split over this issue. The con We're talking about 
faith in the Lord Jesus on the basis of grace that ought to bring about unity in God's people. The controversy jumped the Atlantic in May 1789 where the Reverend Adam Rankin told the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church meeting in Philadelphia, he said, I have ridden horseback all the way from my home in Kentucky to ask this body to refuse the great and pernicious error of adopting the use of Isaac Watts' hymns in public worship in preference to the Psalms of David. Steep, isn't it? Well, let's fast forward to modern day. How about issues, and I ain't got time, how about issues like alcohol? You know, I mean, we teach it because the Bible teaches that we can drink alcohol. Now, I personally don't drink alcohol, but that's my choice. And I would stand and I would teach. Very often, it's funny because I'll be at pastors' conferences or kind of sitting with other pastors that don't maybe know me. And they'll be talking about alcohol and they proper frown on alcohol. Particularly in the States, frown on alcohol. And I'll be like, hmm, well, you know what? Now, I teach that people can drink, and you can see the eyebrows raised, and people begin to get uncomfortable. And I'll say, I'll say well, the Bible says so. The Bible says you can, you can drink, but don't get drunk. You know what I mean? I mean, Jesus drank wine. Come on now. Easy now. <laughs> you know what I mean? But then when I say, but I don't drink, then oh, the shoulders kind of come down. And at the end of the day, that's my choice. And I mean, it's easier for me as a pastor to say it's just easier. That's from my point of view. You know what I'm saying? I just don't, no, no, no thanks, I'm good, I don't drink. Now, how about if you drink? Do you take that liberty to an extent? You know, I went to, well, let me say this before I say that. There could possibly be someone who is an ex-alcoholic, and I know a few of them. I used to work in the post office. A good friend of mine got saved. Alcoholic. Stopped drinking. The Lord really just delivered him wonderfully. And he got stumbled because he went out and he saw some other Christians drinking. And he felt like, you know, the Bible says that we can drink, man. Ain't nothing. And I know I used to drink. And him following them, it wasn't an issue for them. Him following them began drinking again and he fell straight back into alcoholism. Thank the Lord he's out of it now. But he realized that I can't go there. And it's not a law. You know what I mean? But for the sake of a brother or a sister, I remember going to a birthday party. It was, I'm going to say it, it was um, Nigel Ben's birthday party. Nah, forgive me, Lord. I'm not, not going to use that example. I'm not going to use that example. I'm, try, I'm, I'm trying to behave myself but I will tell you this one I went to a, a basketball camp in Munich <laughs> I went to a basketball camp in Munich this is years ago when we was doing a Christian um, basketball camp and we was doing some music some rapping at this, at this camp and after the camp it's lunchtime so we're all getting ready to go and have lunch go to this place it's kind of like it looked like a what did it look like I suppose it looked like a pub, but we just thought we were going to have some pub food. Because, I mean, it's lunchtime. Listen, we sat down on these big tables and the 
The people who were serving brought out these flagons, I mean two-liter glasses of beer, lager, and dropped them on the table. <laughs> we was like, nah, this is a joke, right? Someone's going to run in here in a minute and say, you've been framed or something like that. You know what I mean? No. And they all started drinking, and we were like, we were very uncomfortable with it. Why? Because the Bible says you can't drink? No, because culturally, as a Christian, my environment, we don't do that. Now, we used to. See, when we first got saved, oh my goodness. Is Pastor Patrick in here? Pastor Ephraim? Am I all right? <laughs> no, go for it. You're all right. All right, then I'll tell him that you said. We, back in the day, when we first become Christians, you see the adventure playground? Listen. We, we'd be up at the adventure, and we'd have liquor. I say liquor. That's not true. We never had spirits. Vodka, Bacardi, rum. We never had them kind of things. But we did have lager, and we did have wine. And one, one Christ, I think it was either a New Year's or Christmas or something like that, we had a party. And some of the brothers from the States, it was the guys in the cross movement, came. And we're in there drinking and dancing, secular music and everything. And they wouldn't come inside the hut. And we were like, what's wrong with them brothers? So we went out and made a beeline for them. Come on, you look, come in and enjoy yourself. And at the first couple, they were like, no, 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 we're good, we're good, we're good. And it got to the point where they said, you know what? We can't come in there, we can't do that. It's not that we're judging you because we know that you're believers. But if somebody who's an unbeliever comes in and sees you, they're going to be like, well, what's the difference? What's the difference between me raving, drinking, dancing to secular music? What's the difference between you and them? And we're just saying, we just want to make a distinction. That's all. Oh, my gosh. Talk about convicted. And it's not because we can't. But from that, from that moment, we all determined, you know, we're not going to do this anymore. You know what I mean? And it doesn't mean that you can't have a drink. And it doesn't mean that you can't listen to some secular music. Again, that's another thing that we can talk about another time. But if it, if, if it has the potential of causing someone else to stumble, we've got to be careful, innit? We've got to be careful. How about bikinis? I've got five minutes left. Bikinis, quickly, versus possibly a swimsuit or a tankini. Now, I know a lot of the men don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> because you're not married and you ain't got no daughters or a wife, right? right? Well, there's a big difference between a bikini and a tankini. One covers up more flesh, basically. Now, there's liberty, but what are you saying? When we go to Austria and we have our retreats there, and hopefully in the future, when we hopefully at some point have retreats in Jamaica, pray for that, um, we, we got, we got a, an instruction. Not a law, an instruction. You know what I mean? And we're just saying, hey, in, in this environment where it's all believers, now you might go Spain and they're topless. You know what I'm saying? And you're free to, to, to wear a bikini. If you're surrounded, and, and some feel like they couldn't in that environment, but some can, it's liberty. But if you're surrounded by believers, surely it's only fair to say cover-ups is. And, and even the ladies might struggle with some of them and them. Pulling off top and bearing the chest and her. You know what I mean? Even the guys have to be con considerate in that sense. 
Because we got single ladies. You get me? So it's just about being considerate, isn't it? Is that unfair to say that? You know what I mean? And we got single men. Oh my gosh, how could I miss that out? We got single men who desire to be married and are trying to be godly and are trying to hold it down. So we got to just be sensitive, don't we? Baseball caps. I mean, we're cool around here. Because <laughs> we don't see it as an issue, but there are some churches, you go in there, you don't know, just take off your cap, it's nothing. Nah, but you know, I've got liberty and it doesn't matter. Show me in the back. Come on now. You know what I mean? Tattoos. Some people are really offended at tattoos. You know what I mean? And um, you know as well as I do, if you go for a job, it's wisdom to cover up if you've got tattoos. Because someone somewhere will see that and they will judge you on that basis. No matter if you've got Jesus all over your arms. You know what I mean? And it's quote-unquote communicating a good message. Now tattoos is an issue that at this point I feel falls into the category of liberty. There are Old Testament verses that talk about it, but you've got to keep them in their context. You know what I mean? <laughs> and in their context, they're not saying that you, you can't have a tattoo. But I think, you know what I mean, there's issues to talk about around that. So I think even as some of us are older, I'll tell you something, the youth are not in here, but let me tell you, um, a lot of the youth are inspired, you know what I mean, by you. They look to you, they look to us as adults. And very often, they get it wrong. They're young people. And I think we need to have grace for them. You know what I mean? We need to have grace because very often the things that we judge them for doing, we're doing ourselves. You know what I mean? So we've got to have mercy. Otherwise God will judge us by the same standards that we judge them. They need our help and they drop the ball all the time. I mean, I've got two teenagers. I, bet I, I, I need to learn to have mercy. Otherwise I'll end up committing murder. Throw them out the first floor window. That's how I feel sometimes. Can I get an amen if you're a parent? All right then. You know what I mean? But, but I'm saying they emulate you. And I really want to tell this other story, but I don't think I have the liberty to do that. But recently, a young person, you know what I'm saying, who is being mentored by an older person, within a week of being mentored, said to this other person, I want to do that thing. I want to have what you've got. I want to emulate you in this particular area. And it was just amazing how the influence of an older person, you know what I'm saying, to the point where that younger person wanted to emulate that older person. I'm saying in all of these areas, and I'll end on this one, jeans. Now, I say jeans, and you think, man, I understand some of the others, but jeans. It's like jeans is nothing in our community. There's a church in Camberwell that a friend of mine went to because he woke up to go church late one day. Went into this church in his jeans and a T-shirt. Big mistake. He's walked in, and literally as he's walked in, it's all eyes on him. And he sat at the back, and he thought, well, whatever, I'm new. Sat down. The pastor preached the whole message at him. And then the sisters, the older Pentecostal sisters, turned round at the end of the service and said to him, son, you need to get saved. <laughs> and he was like, mom, he goes, mom, I'm, I'm already saved. She said, and are them the jeans there? 
basically, you can't be a Christian in them jeans. And I, 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 I experienced this personally. Because when I got saved, and I went to tell my mum that I got saved, she looked at my jeans. And she said, Robbie, a church you're coming from? In a jeans? And it took my mum a minute to, to, to appreciate the fact that I genuinely was saved. I was like, you know what, mum, see it like this. You know the Bible talks about wolves in sheep's clothing? Just see me as a sheep in wolves' clothing. <laughs> see, in Jamaica we go into churches that are very strict on their dress code. Five-piece suit. <laughs> Anything less, you're frowned upon. So what are we going to do? Well, you know what? We come from London, yeah? And we don't get down like that still. And furthermore, let me just show you in the Bible where you... No, we can't go in with that kind of attitude. That's not right. It's not wrong, but it's not right. (laughs) And we're not being culturally sensitive, so we put on a pair of strides and we put on a little shirt. Because why would we want to cause offense when we're there to help and support? We want to bring about unity. We have freedom to do these things, but we also have freedom not to. 1 Corinthians 10, as we finish, says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one, and it's the issue, let no one seek his own good. Well, I can do it, and the Bible don't say that. Let no one say that. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Augustine said, in essentials, unity. And we saw that at the beginning of this chapter, didn't we? They were firm and resolute and they were not budging on the gospel. The gospel of grace. But you see, in non-essentials, liberty Liberty to do it, but also liberty not to. But in all things, charity. In all things, let's love each other. May our faith in the Lord Jesus, like those at this Jerusalem council, lead to biblical, godly unity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Father, you You're a heavy, heavenly father. I have to say that. Because you're just so wise. And I'm so encouraged, father, that your word, one, it doesn't change. And two, it's completely relative. 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 200 years ago, right up to today, present day. 2010 your word is relevant it's amazing you're heavy and you've brought us in imagine we're not Jews we're Gentiles and father we're so grateful that Jesus is the king he's the king of the dynasty that broke down that fell down that needed fixing needed attention and Jesus came as the king of that kingdom. And you reconstructed it. And made it even greater than it was. And that kingdom is still 
still functioning. And Jesus is still the king. And he's seated on the throne. And he is the anointed. He is the Messiah. He's the savior. And now we get to be subjects in the kingdom. Not because we keep the law or because we're circumcised. But because of faith in Christ Jesus. And we thank you. And it's all because of the sacrifice of Christ on that cross for our sins. That gives us entry. That makes the way for us to come to you boldly. Thank you this afternoon. Thank you for the liberty that we have in Christ. May we temper it because of the love that we have for one another. In Jesus' name. And for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I'm 